You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine, and in this episode, the CEO of Copperstone Technologies, Craig Milne, discusses the Alberta-based robotics company's unique amphibious vehicles, the AR2 and Neptune, which autonomously navigate and take measurements from toxic mining and oil sands tailing ponds. But before we jump in, a few words from this episode's sponsor, Igus. Igus provides 3D printing filaments and powders designed specifically for motion and wear. Igus also manufactures plane bearings, linear systems, and cable carriers that are made with innovative self-lubricating injection molded plastics. Speak to one of their representatives about how they can assist with your application. Visit igus.ca to learn more. That's igus.ca. With that, let's get into the interview. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the Design Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me on today, Mike. No problem. If you could, could you introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the company that you work for, Copperstone? Yeah, thanks. I'm Craig Milne, CEO of Copperstone Technologies in Edmonton, Canada. We are a robotics company. Uh, we design, manufacture, and operate robots as a service, uh, typically for the mining industry. Um, you know, we focus on hazardous site investigation with our robots. So what is it about tailing ponds that need to be investigated? So you mentioned tailings ponds. So those tailings are the, the waste byproduct of the mining industry, really. And, and the industry stores all of their tailings in these large open pit facilities. Um, and they can have really challenging access in, to them. Uh, sometimes the consistency of tailings can be like peanut butter or yogurt. Sometimes there's open water, sometimes it's rocky and hard ground. And it's really that variability of terrain which makes it hard to access. Um, mm. But the mining company needs to be able to access tailings for monitoring, for maintenance, for compliance issues. There's lots of reasons to be able to, lots of reasons to need to get out there, but the, the terrain, the variability of terrain makes it really hard to do that. And so I imagine these kinds of, of waste areas are present in all kinds of things, uh, maybe tar sands or other kinds of operations. Yeah, we like to call them the oil sands. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, the oil. So actually, it's not just oil sands. So all mining produce uh, tailings, really, uh, whether it's gold or copper, um, you know, aluminum bauxite uh, ponds are, are also very challenging to access. So it's really all types of mining. And and the mining industry itself is growing rapidly, especially with the need for battery metals. Um, things like copper are in very hot demand. Um, and so there's actually an increase in the amount of tailings that companies are putting out right now because of the increased mining demands. And so the challenge in the past, from what I, I'm implying from what you've said, is, is getting I imagine it's pretty toxic to be out there if you're a person on like a little metal bottom, you know, metal boat and trying to scoop out readings or, or whatever sensors have to be submerged in the, in the aqueous kind of material. Yeah, toxicity can be, can be a factor. Uh, and certainly there are uranium tailings that uh, mm. nobody wants to get out onto. Right, right. Um, but really, it's. It, 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 imagine walking across a lake of peanut butter, mm. right? Like the, the, the hazard becomes immediately obvious, right? You get stuck in it, right? And, and just not being able to come out. So you can't drive a truck across peanut butter. 
you can't float a boat through that kind of material. So um, the, the challenge becomes a lot of the physical hazards of crossing that. And then because the facilities can be quite large, they can be several square miles. Uh, you get all sorts of debris that can arise. There are open pits of water. Sometimes the, you know, the water can be several meters deep, uh, you know, or 50 feet deep in, in areas. Uh, and it's just all of that terrain together that makes the, the environment hazardous and challenging. So your, your company makes unique, would, would, would it be right to call them drones? Um, if you could describe the, the typical kind of copperstone robotic vessel. Sure. So we, we typically describe them as amphibious vehicles. Uh, and amphibious, meaning that they actually float on the surface of water as well as drive across hard ground. So, you know, technically they are drones. They are, they are unmanned vehicles um, or remote operated vehicles. Um, but, and when we say large, we're talking about, you know, uh, several hundred pounds to even several thousand pounds. Um, hmm. So the size of a small golf cart to the size of small cars, really. Uh, and the robots need to be large because of, of the heavy equipment that they bring out, the, the sampling gear that they're using on tailings facilities is very heavy by nature. And, and then the robot needs to be able to push it into the ground as well. So that creates a mass requirement as well. Um, and then being amphibious and floating on water, driving on water like a boat, um, we have all of that capability in the robots. And it's hard to picture without seeing it. And I've watched several videos of it. Yeah, if you could, if you could delve into that a bit. Yeah, so the, the design is actually, it's a hundred year old concept. Um, there was a, a tractor built by Ford that was really efficient at crawling across snow. Uh, Chrysler had something in the Vietnam War. The, the Russians even used something in their cosmonaut program. So the concept of a screw drive vehicle exists. And, and really what it is, like you described, is a, is a pontoon. Uh, so it's a hollow tube that allows the, the vehicle to float in water or in, in soft materials. And then there's a helical coil or a screw that goes around that. And so as the, as the pontoon turns, that screw becomes basically like a propeller. Uh, and, and if we turn it fast enough, it can be like a propeller, like a boat. And we can drive sort of the, the axial dimension of the screw. That's one of the upgrades that we've done since the sort of the traditional vehicles is that we have hmm. two screws on each side. Uh, and they rotate in opposite directions. Uh, and that's critical that allows us to both steer better than a two-screw vehicle, um, but we can also roll sideways, which actually makes the vehicle very efficient on hard ground. Unlike, you know, that's one of the challenges with traditional screwed vehicles. So. Oh, I see. They usually try and go forward along the long axis, but this is perpendicular to that. And it Right. Yeah. So we can we we basically screw or move uh, axially through soft material, anything from snow through water or mud, and then we move perpendicularly to the the dimension of the screws on hard ground, and then gotcha. roll like a wheel. Yeah. And then once it gets in the water, how does it? It changes a little bit. Yeah. So we typically roll across a beach uh, perpendicular to the screws, and then once we hit the water, we change ninety degrees and screw forwards. And then there's a jet, uh, there's like a water jet kind of arrangement that helps propel it forward? No, it's just the, oh, actually just okay. the turning of the screws. We have, oh, we have I enough see. control over the speed and torque of the screws that we can, we can turn fast enough that the screw itself becomes a propeller. So being the size that they are, I imagine that there's a lot of configuration. This is a platform that can accommodate a lot of different 
customized sensors, uh, instruments of different kinds. I mean, I imagine you have standard packages for different kinds of environment, but if, uh, if somebody needs something specific, I'm sure that that's something that can be handled. That's right. So there's a lot of industry standard measurements and sampling gear. Uh, and so one of the things that Copperstone has done has been able to automate all of those tools because we now have to operate uh, these tools robotically, you know, being able to, to do it at a distance. And, right. and some of the tools can be a little bit complicated in how they have to get actuated after they get deployed. Um, but there are sometimes we do get custom requests, things that we have to develop sort of from scratch here at Copperstone. And, and luckily we have a, a crack team of geniuses that, that love challenging themselves to those kind of problems. And so we do develop things from the ground up as well. It's wow. a lot, we think of it a lot like sort of the Mars rovers. Uh, you know, there's these robots operating out in hazardous locations that are collecting samples, taking measurements. And so, you know, we not only build the vehicle that can get out there, but all of the, the payloads and tools and functionalities to make the robot useful once we're out in that hazardous location. So I mentioned for the industry, this is quite expensive and difficult and nobody <laughs> relishes doing it, I'm sure, because usually it's people doing those kinds of things. But as you're mentioning, it's, it's all automated with not just the boat itself, but the instrumentation as well. That's actually where a lot of the expense comes from is, is people. So with traditional methods, you're sending out, you know, if you put people in a boat and send them out into a tailings pond with water on it, you have to have several people in the boat and you've got to have a rescue plan and there's work mm. permits that need to go on to, to ensure that the people in the boat are safe and they've got life jackets and proper training. When we send a robot out to the tailings facility, it's actually a lot easier. The, the planning, because there's no person directly at risk in this situation, it actually becomes easier. We don't need really very many people to operate the robots at all. Uh, in, in most cases, it can be done by a single person or even remotely. We haven't really flipped the switch on some of that stuff just uh, because of sort of industry standards of having people nearby heavy equipment. Um, sure. But our solution really isn't any more expensive than, than the existing processes that do require so many people at risk. And so is it pre-programmed with waypoints that it hits and then returns or uh, does, does somebody just float it around? Yeah, so both of those things exist today. So oh, okay. Uh, we have we have a remote controller. You can either use a, a joystick, kind of like an Xbox controller, or through a computer you can control the robot uh, and and you know read all of its uh, data, its telemetry coming back from from how it's operating and control its operations. Um, but we also have GPS enabled waypoint navigation, so you can plot a course and the robot will follow the pathway and do its jobs uh, without any oversight. Um, and then we want, you know, we're still building in greater autonomy, uh, better path planning, collision avoidance, all those types of things where the robot basically can become smarter at its own navigation systems. So how does it, when it gets to the job site, I mean, is it transported like a... It, we, we typically carry it on a flatbed trailer, like oh, an okay. ATV trailer, or a 20-foot trailer, depending on the size of the robot. Uh, it's able to deploy itself from the trailer. So uh, our operators install ramps on the side of the, the on the trailer and the robot's able to crawl down the trailer, crawl across a beach, um, into, the, into the water, into the tailings facility, whatever, whatever happens to be the site. Um, and then our, our people are just on site 
safely on shore, uh, overseeing the operations, and like you mentioned, either setting those waypoints or you know changing batteries, that type of thing. But the robot, we're setting it up so that it can uh, deploy itself as much as possible. So yeah, one or two people could conceivably do the whole job from the shore. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. The real vision in the future is actually to be, uh, you know, much like the the NASA control room. You know, being able to have here at Copperstone oversight into a number of different robots with with our operators uh, being able to monitor and maintain some of the robots at a distance, and then having somebody locally that's able to just make sure things are operating safely um, from sort of an eyes on site perspective. How long do they usually stay out? Is this like an hour or two hour long thing? Do they do this for days at a time? What's a, what's a typical job look like? Yeah, it, it depends on sort of the function of what we get asked to do. And, and you know, sometimes it's weeks. Um, oh. the, amount of, the amount of data that we have to collect or samples that we have to collect, it can, it can actually take weeks to do that. You know, and, and quite often we're doing like large surveys. Again, these facilities can be several square miles. And so mm -hmm. it just, it does take a lot of time to cover that kind of area or collect the samples or if we're, if we're drilling out any cores or anything like that, it, it just takes time to execute those things. Now, as I understand it, there are two main models that you guys have. Now there's the original AR1 and then the more recent Neptune that came out June, May of last year, I think. Yep. Yeah. Air One for us is actually a, a, a prototype, prototype here. We retired back gotcha. in the shop, but we okay. actually, you know, the, the model that I think you're referring to is AR2. Oh, AR2. I'm sorry. Creative, creative naming on that one. But uh, <laughs> so AR2 is, is one of our workhorses. It's about the size of a small car. And we do a lot of geotechnical investigations uh, for, for mining companies. And so what that is, is really uh, investigating the, the bearing strength of tailings or ground you know, to understand the foundation, the, the strength of the earth, mm. um, that's its main function. And then Helix Neptune, um, like you mentioned, we launched it just last summer uh, in about the May-June timeframe. Uh, and it does a lot of water-based work. So water sampling or, or survey work using sonars, that type of thing. So how fast do these typically move? In meant, water, or... sorry, in, in no. water, we... Yeah, we typically travel just under a meter per second. So it's a, it's kind of a, it's a slow survey speed, but, you know, but a walking speed or so. Sure. Um, they can, they can drive a little bit faster in water, about one and a half meters per second, uh, which is, I think it's about three knots um, in, in knot language. Um, on hard ground, they actually can, can travel quite quickly. Um, hmm. You know, they're, they do roll like a car. Um, it, it's about 14, 15 kilometers an hour that they can travel on hard ground. Wow. Uh, and then it really just becomes about the, the material we're trafficking over. You know, we, we move slowly through mud, but uh, still, again, typically about a walking speed is a safe speed to move. And I imagine it's more about the, the torque in those kinds of situations, because the last thing you'd want is a 350 pound or, I don't know, really heavy. I know these are in the 300 kilogram or pound range and <laughs> having one get stuck. I, I can imagine would be a nightmare. That's right. Yeah, torque has actually been the 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 magic sauce in a lot of cases. You know, making sure that we have enough torque that we don't get stuck, and it seems like there's never enough. Uh, it's always it's always about increasing torque for us, and and different materials, of course, have vastly different requirements. You know, through water, we're really concerned about turning fast enough, so we have to keep our speed high, but the, there's very little torque requirements. But then we can hit a beach and all of a sudden the torque requirements get 
very high and speeds get very slow. Um, and so that has been a lot of the, the design engineering challenges about choosing the right motor gearbox combinations that we can perform all of those operations and then doing it at you know, some reasonable endurance as well is, is tough. And then in all weather environments too. Right. Well, you mentioned the Mars Rover analogy. <laughs> I imagine, I mean, I've, everything I've heard about that is, is there's rocky terrain, there's flat terrain, you never know what you're going to hit. Is there any kind of suspension or any kind of techniques that the, that the helix employs in order to deal with uneven ground? Or is it, it's more the mucky, uh, sticky kind of environments that you have to worry about? We do crawl up and down um, dam faces and rock walls and things like oh. that. So there, there, there definitely are situations where where that's important. Uh, we currently don't have any built-in suspension. It's just that the robot is designed as a rigid vehicle that can that can handle that. And and really, then our our ability to climb over obstacles becomes kind of traction limited uh, at that point we're not traveling really quickly. So we don't need a suspension for any sort of absorption reasons. Gotcha. It's really just about traction for us at this point. Okay. And they're so big and wide that it's not going to, it's not like a Rover that's going to, has danger of tipping over or anything. It's not going on in any major grades. I imagine. That's right. If we have to go up something that's very steep, we, we might use a winch to assist or something like that. And, and in water, much like a boat, we have to make sure that we're, we're stable uh, in open water because we, you know, there is a potential for tipping there, and that could be a risk. So. Now, these are are electric, or are they gas powered? How? Sorry, they're all electric. Uh, we use electric motors, uh, and then they're powered by uh, a large series of lithium polymer batteries. Um, you know, we went with lithium polymer because for us, uh, the the power to weight weight ratio was really critical. Um, hmm. Just because we have to, we have to maintain buoyancy in water. So we we're concerned about some of the other battery chemistries can can have more power, but they they weigh more per unit power. Gotcha. So gotcha. lithium lithium polymer works for us, and then it's much like a, an electric vehicle. Really, we have a, a large bank of, of batteries, and and uh, always needing more batteries as well. But we do get several hours of performance out of the charge now. So. Several hours. We, get, we typically get several hours out of uh, a single battery charge. Uh, and then, then we quite often just have a second set of batteries that we keep charged up uh, on shore. And so we'll, we'll just come out and do a battery swap uh, just to keep things operating uh, continuously, more or less. And the weight ratio, I hadn't realized. I mean, it's only got so much buoyancy. So, I mean, you want to leave as much headroom for payload as possible. What is the typical payload uh, for the... The Neptune is the working, I mean, that's the one that you have to worry about the buoyancy is the Neptune. They both get into open water environments. Okay. Um, okay. And so we, we do, we do think about buoyancy a lot for, for both robots. Uh, Neptune can carry uh, almost hundred kilograms of additional weight or almost 200 pounds or so. Uh, and then Helix AR2 is much bigger. We can, we can carry uh, several hundred kilograms of additional weight on it. It does depend on how we configure things. And, you know, we do include the batteries and some of that mass as well. So um, quite often there's a little customizations that happen before we, before we go to a job, just making sure we have the right level of batteries, you know, not too much, just the right amount to carry the, the tools that we're carrying for that day. In the development of, of the Helix robots, was there one aspect that, Pose the biggest sort of engineering challenge for 
for the team? I think one of the early breakthroughs was moving from, uh, we talked about that sort of the two screw concept to the four screw concept. Gotcha. We, we had a, a prototype um, with two screws and, and sort of proved the concept. We, you know, we could build a robot that can traffic in soft materials. And, and much like these, you know, existing screwdriver vehicles, we, we proved it at, at the, you know, for a robotic vehicle and at scale. Um, but we, we recognize that there's challenges in turning and challenges in hard ground trafficking and stuff. And so moving to the four screws was a big deal. Um, and then, you know, we covered off torque is one of the, the perpetual rabbits that we're chasing is just making sure that we have enough torque and, and even balancing out uh, torque and speed to having, having the full range of selection available to us is always a challenge. Um, and then the third biggest nut for us is really the just the ruggedization, you know, we we're out in, mm. in terribly hazardous environments in all weather, in all seasons. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, getting stuck and, and that would be catastrophic. And so how do we make sure that the robot is tough enough that we've got enough communication, enough redundancy that we don't lose a computer or a radio or something that that's required for us to continue communicating or continue operating and get back to shore. Is the telemetry and and the piloting the is that communication handled by uh, like what you'd see in an RC kind of except on an industrial sort of industrial strength? What is the what is the uh, what is the manner by which that's accomplished? Yeah, so we started we started with you know very very simple electronics on the robot and much like an RC, uh, you know the vehicle is not very intelligent. It's just it's just relaying signals. Um, but as we've, as time's gone on, we've we've you know there's several computers on board the robot. Uh, we log all of the data both on the robot as well as transmit back to shore and and log it again in a in a ground station that we use to control the robot. Um, and so now now that we've got the computers on board the robot, we can start to add um, some more of that navigational intelligence that I mentioned. So you know we've as of about last year or so, we, we have stereo cameras on the robot. So we can actually start to see um, depth perception from the robot. And now we can start to, to build in you know, our own data and learning of, of you know, what the robot sees and how the robot should be reacting to that depth. And with the computers on board, we can start to process that information. And that's how eventually we're gonna build up an autonomy package so that the robot can actually drive around and make decisions about how to drive around safely because it can see obstacles and it can see and make some intelligent decisions about uh, its path planning. Amazing, great. So, how did how long has the company been around? Officially, the company was incorporated about eight and a half years ago. And oh, the first, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, time goes quickly, but the first few years really were uh, really about early prototyping. The the founders. Um, Nicholas Olmedo, uh, Jamie Ewan um, were university students at the time. They were they were finishing off master's degrees in. Uh, uh, Nicholas finished a PhD in mechanical engineering. And Jamie has a master's degree in mechanical engineering from the U of A, University of Alberta. Um, and so they were basically building robots, uh, kind of on the side. It was a it was a project that started from from sort of a, a need that they had as a, a student project. Um, and they were doing some consulting work and you know the company sort of bubbled along for those first few years uh just proving out the concept and then about three and a half years or so ago four years ago uh we really started to focus on commercial efforts um you know building robots as as an actual commercial 
enterprise uh, and started offering services to the mining industry uh, for about the past three years or so now. Oh, that's great. Are there any major customers that you can mention? You know, it's our customers just being the way they are. They don't like sure. to be named, but yeah, yeah. it's no, I but it's really but it's, I, did, it, I throw it out there anyway. I, I wish I could say so. It's really the who's who of my, the mining industry. Is it? Um, okay. Yeah. And, you know, there's a few that have, have publicly even mentioned us. And so that's an easy one. But, uh, you know, we've done some work for Imperial Oil here in Alberta. Um, uh, you know, we've done some work for Valet. You know, we were part of a, a, a program where, where Valet, you know, world's largest iron mining company, was looking for unmanned geotechnical investigation services um, and really you know that that's exactly what Copperstone was able to respond with and so we had a little program with them through their Brazilian uh, operations to to demonstrate our capabilities but really there's all of the big mining companies uh, at some point our our clients now are close to be that's great. And the, and the business model is uh, robot so you're not selling these. You have you have a couple or, or a number of models uh, that you have, and and so these are rented out. They're not they're not for sale. So in some situations, so you're right. Typically, uh, robots as a service is how the mining industry has asked us to operate. Um, we we collect data and samples and do projects for the mining industry, and it's an easy way for them to engage. You know, if they just need a survey done, we come to site, we do it. Um, there's no risk to them really, the, and the cost is is very manageable as well. Um, in some situations, though, there are uh, extraordinary demands um, that that might require an asset purchase. You know, for a mining company to actually purchase a robot, um, but those right now are the special case and not the norm for us. I know that the company has garnered its fair share of uh, sort of accolades. I think there was sort of an uh, Alberta Innovates Award a few years ago. Most recently, I think uh, one of the founders got the Entrepreneur of the Year Award from uh, from MyTax. MyTax, my yeah. yeah, that's yeah. true. So um, Nicholas, one of the co-founders of Copperstone, uh, he's our, currently our chief technology officer. So he finished a PhD in mechanical engineering. He's uh, part of a program called MyTax, which is a uh, it's an agency that basically connects uh, university researchers to to companies like Copperstone. And so Nicholas is part of a program um, where he still is able to do university research uh, officially as a postdoctoral fellow, but he's also CTO of Copperstone and and helping grow the business here. And so being able to ride sort of both of those worlds uh, has been where Nicholas has been living for a while. Um, and then through that, uh, MyTax recognized Copperstone and Nicholas specifically as, as Entrepreneur of the Year, because again, Nicholas was one of the co-founders of Copperstone and, and you know, instrumental in building everything we've got to date. Yeah, we had the CEO of MyTax on just uh, not too long ago. And, and so when I saw that award, it just sort of sent up uh sent up uh signals to me and stuff i thought that was great that that this was a big success story of that particular amongst many uh of that particular program what is the uh what's the plan for the future more uh, is it international or are you thinking in the u.s uh first and then other places uh more different models that fit a different smaller larger What's the- yeah, so we, we do operate in the U.S. already. Oh, okay. Um, we, we have a handful of clients um, throughout the U.S. 
Uh, and so continuing to grow that operation is, is in the near future for us. We, we do want to make more robots, which enables us to basically service more clients. So we've got gotcha. some growing to do as a company so that we can, we can satisfy that demand. Um, there is an enormous amount of interest internationally. Um, mm. I did mention, you know, uh, Brazil and some mining operations they had there. So they've, they have very large uh, tailings facilities and some challenges, especially with the, uh, not only the history of how they've been built in foreign countries, you know, sure. some lax regulations and things like that, but also just the challenges of their climate, R really heavy rain seasons. In some places, there's actually seismic activity around tailings, which can create additional problems. Um, so we, we definitely have our sites internationally as well. Um, and then uh, at, the, at the heart of it, you know, we are a robotics company, you know, Nicholas and Jamie, they love building robots. The whole team loves improving how they work, uh, making them more rugged, you know, and, and even the, the space robotics connection earlier was, was intentional. Hmm. You know, we, we think we're, we're practicing here on earth, you know, we're, we're operating in some of the world's harshest environments so that maybe one day we're not operating here on earth. We're continuing okay. to do this kind of work, exploring other planets. Sure. Of course. Yeah, I imagine the same concept would work in different kinds of gravities or different kinds of environments like that. And so I, I imagine that the market is quite is is quite promising. Do you have some sense of of the market potential? I think so. Like the the mining industry is is huge. Um, you know, there's the the good thing is there's not a lot of players really. Like the the number of mining companies is fairly small, but they all just own a lot of facilities. Uh, you know, but their their reach is really global, right? There's there's thousands of there's actually tens of thousands of uh, abandoned or active mine sites around the world, and the, one of the challenges, especially focusing just on tailings and the waste side of of mining that we are in right now, is once these tailings facilities get set up, they they quite often need monitoring indefinitely. Um, mm. You know, some people think that that tailings facilities will be the longest lived man-made structures on earth that they will really? need to basically last forever in some situations. So this is not a problem that goes away. You know, the mining industry is trying to, to make less tailings. They're trying to find ways to, to reclaim, to reduce and, and all of the right things, you know, they are doing the right things right now, but it's still, it's a massive problem, you know, billions of cubic meters of tailings. Yeah. Hmm. So, so the, the industry is, is large and it, and I mentioned too, it's, it is growing because of the demand for battery metals, really. Of course, uh, especially in Canada. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. They can't, I mean, I imagine they can be remediated, but they'll always, they're kind of always going to be there. That's kind of surprising to hear. Yeah. There's a few shining examples, you know, here in our, in our neck of the woods in Alberta, um, you know, there have been some tailings ponds that have been reclaimed. Um, there's lots of interest globally to do that, but it is, it is difficult to do. They are very large facilities and, and there are, you know, decades worth of material of questionable substance in some of them. Yeah. So wow. uh, difficult to do, but sure. doesn't mean it's not important to get it done. Yeah, exactly. What's the best way to get in touch with Copperstone? Yeah, we've got uh, a website. We're about to actually launch a new website here in about, uh, actually should be towards the end of this week. We have a new website up. Excellent. Uh, so it, it's designed to be a source of great information about what we do, what the industry does, and, and how we can, we can assist. Uh, and so hopefully there's some good information there. There is a contact form if you've got, if you've definitely got questions about, about what we do, um, feel free to reach out to us that way. 
uh, we've got an email address on the website that you can connect with us. Um, and we're, we're happy to look at all sorts of, of interesting challenges if there's things that we can do to assist with, with your needs. Great. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Design Engineering Podcast's other episodes at www.design-engineering.com slash podcasts, or subscribe to the podcast via the major streaming services, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And finally, this episode was brought to you by IGUS Canada, a manufacturer of self-lubricating high-performance plastics. These plastics are used in their 3D filaments and powders, plane bearings, linear systems, and cable carriers. Their parts are clean, hygienic, long-lasting, as well as appropriate for high-duty applications. Visit igus.ca to find out more or to chat with one of their experts.